Hi, my name is Maddie. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brooke. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 2, 11 through 15. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Etienne. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with them. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born who is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Just remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, come and let your words quicken our heart. Let your word transform us. Let your word bring life to us. We pray that you would speak to us this morning and give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see Jesus, and the hearts to be truly transformed in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, most of you know that I'm from Malaysia and, and grew up there, and then when I was 10, my family moved 
from Malaysia to America. We lived in Oregon for three years, moved back to Malaysia during my high school years, and then I came back to the States to go to college. And I remember getting there as this freshman uh, and seeing all, all, a lot of the guys on my floor have these massive CD collections and just thinking, man, how'd you do that? Like, you're kind of broke. You don't have a lot of other things, but you've got this massive CD collection. And they said, oh, man, it's, it's simple. There's this club that you can be part of, you know? And I, I was eager to, to know how to get in on this. And so it was that club where, you know, you get a whole bunch of CDs free or for a penny or whatever, and you sign up, and then the next month you pay the actual subscription, might be like $19.99 or something like that. And I thought, this is amazing. This is the best deal ever. America, I love America, you know. You get CDs for a penny, and you, and you, you, you know, you sign up, you get all your free CDs, and then you realize you forgot to cancel your subscription, right? And then two months in, three months in, any anyone remember this stuff? Maybe DVD clubs, right? And you're like, doggone it, I'm paying $40 and I haven't even gotten my CD of the month or whatever, right? And sometimes I think this is how we think about the gospel, is we kind of sign up to, be, to follow Jesus because there seems to be a lot of free stuff. There seems to be some good deals. Oh, heaven? I'd love heaven. I, it's better than the other place, you know? And so we sign on and then all of a sudden you, you keep coming to church and you're like, wait, I'm supposed to do more? You you want me to serve on a Saturday? You want me to help out with the nursery and children's ministry? Wait a second. Nobody told me about all the hidden costs. And maybe some of this is the result of, you know, bait and switch evangelism. You know, say yes to Jesus. Your life will be awesome. Okay, maybe not, but say yes anyway, right? And and so maybe maybe some of the reason we have this this mentality of saying, well, I just want to get what I can that's free, but I want to say no to all the extra costs. Maybe that's because of the way the gospel has been presented. Maybe we keep thinking that it's too good to be true. Maybe there's some of you that are like, well, I don't know. I mean, this sounds too good to be true, like the grace of God, forgiveness, you know, sins being taken away. I mean, that sounds great, but what's the catch? There's got to be a catch. And so we're sort of nervously waiting, I wonder if. And then others of us, we're looking for kind of the the Frontier Airlines version of Christianity. Like, I want to get to my destiny. I want to get to heaven, but I don't want the peanuts or the Coke or the... I don't need drinks. I just want to get to... Can I do the low-cost version of Christianity? Is that okay? Can I do that? Can I get to to the place that I'm trying to go, but not... Can I just pay extra if I need to? Is this extra credit? I mean, how, how does this work? And so we either divide things up and say, well, there's these extra costs if you want extra benefits, but actually, uh, you know, you can just get there if you just just sign right here. Or we think, you know what, (laughs) I really think this must be too good to be true. There's got to be this this bait and switch. There's got to be hidden costs. Or I I know that there's probably some of us that fit in the third category. And the third category is the ones that we're so eager to perform or to please a, 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 you know, a teacher or an authority figure, that when someone says, you need to be there and serve from 9 to noon on Saturday, you think, I'll be there from 8 to 1. You got it, you know? Like, you're that, you just want to go above me. I just, I want to make God happy. I want to do extra. I mean, what do I need to do? Is there extra credit for heaven? I'll do the extra credit, you know? 
And so there's some of us, while some of us are looking to skate by, we want the low-budget version of, of Christianity. Others of us are, are afraid about, we're kind of cynical about the bait and switch. There are still some of us that think, you know what, this all depends on me. And so I've got to work and prove, and then God will give me stuff. And so I just want to be a good student. I want to be a good Christian. I want to do all this. I want to check the box. I want to do whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. God bless you. You know, those are, those are, Pat, you know, it'd be very easy to sort of take advantage of that situation. But I want to say to us that all three of those categories are an inaccurate way of perceiving the gospel. That actually what we encounter here in this series is something radically different than that. We've been going through this series on the life of Abraham through the book of Genesis, and it's called The Story of Us, because it really is not just the story of Abraham, it's really the story of God putting the world back together again. In a very real way, Genesis 3 through 11 is the story of the world coming apart at the seams, all of the different seams of relationships between uh, men and women, between brothers, between uh, tribes, between humans and God. The whole world is coming apart at the seams. And then in Genesis 12 is God's announcement that he's going to put the world back together again, and he's going to do it through this, this family, through this individual named Abraham. But it doesn't take us long in the series before we realize Abraham's in need of saving too. And we realize he's a man of fear, and then we see Lot's sin, and then we see uh, Sarah's mistake, and then we see all of these different complications that are going, and you're saying, wait a minute, these are the people that God is supposed to use to put the world back together again, and their lives are broken. Well, this morning, as we come to this text, it's Genesis 17, and we're going to explore the question, what does it take to actually get in on this? How do we get to participate in God's plan to put the world back together again? What does it take to be part of this? How can we get in on this? Is it like the CD club? Is it like Frontier Airlines? Is it like doing extra credit homework? How does this work? How does it work to be part of this plan? Genesis 17 verse 1. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Stephen Todd gave us a beautiful teaching about God's covenant faithfulness. This theme has come up already in the story. In fact, this is the fourth time that God makes a promise to Abraham. This is the fourth time that he's done it. Now, whether or not this is kind of like our sort of storytelling where it's all stories told in sequence. Probably not. Whether this is kind of a circling, a revisiting around these scenes, but with a different thing in focus each time, that's more likely. Either way, this is the fourth occasion in the story that God is iterating, reiterating a promise to Abram. Now, it's worth saying this. We'll never understand how grace works if we think in terms of the Western notions of gift. The Western notions of gift are like this. For something to be a gift, there are no strings attached. Right? That's what we think. It's no strings attached. That's got to be, that's got to be how, that's what we think. But that's actually not how gift giving was in the ancient world. In fact, if you've traveled to Asia or to Africa or other parts of the world, you'll know that there are different, there's a different meaning altogether with the giving of a gift. That it is a purely kind of Western notion to say, if I give you this, I don't want anything back, it's just yours. But that's actually not the worldview of Abraham and the covenants. 
And as long as we think in terms of that, sort of these binaries of either it's a gift or I must do something, we'll never get covenant or grace. And so we, we struggle with this as Western Christians. We think, well, which is it? Is God's grace free or does it demand everything from me? I don't know. It can't be. And so one camp says, oh, you know what? You don't have to do anything ever. Not only, not only do you not have to do anything to earn grace, but you don't have to do anything after grace. Just be you. You do you. Right? Oh, there's this other group that says, no, look, if God is going to, you know, it's the Keith Green version. Jesus rose from the grave and you can't even get out of bed. You know? It's a great, greatest song lyric of all time, you know. Like, which is it? I don't understand. One of the things we have to catch is that gift giving in the ancient world is not like our concept of gifts. And let me, I want to spell it out in three ways this morning. But the giving of a gift, the making of a promise, actually creates a new kind of relationship, actually puts you in a, a relationship that is mutual and reciprocal. It's interesting if you ever go uh, to, to Asia or to Africa and someone says, I'm, I'm going to do all these things for you. And then you say, oh, that's so nice. And then you don't find some way of returning the honor. They're like, oh, well, this is, what a rude guest. And you're like, I don't know, why am I so rude? They gave me all this stuff. What, I'm supposed to do something back? That's not a gift. You're like, no, you don't get how this works. Honor is graciously given, and you find a way to graciously return the honor and the blessing. Because by being a recipient, you have become a participant. By being a recipient, you have become a participant. By receiving this, you are now invited into a new kind of relationship. A new kind. That's how covenant works. And I want, us, I want us to explore this together in at least three ways. The first is this, that when God establishes covenant, He gives us a new identity. When God establishes covenant, he creates, he gives us a new identity. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, this actually happens for Sarah. Her name goes from Sarai to Sarah in verse 15 and 16. You can see this. Now, when you pour over the different commentaries and all that, there's maybe a little case to be made that the meaning of Abram's name changes a little bit from Abram to Abraham. But there's, it's very difficult to make the case that the meaning changes from Sarai to Sarah. They both kind of essentially mean princess. And so we're like, well, what was the whole point of the name change? The point of the name change is identity. It's God's way of saying, when I make covenant with you, you get a new kind of identity. You get a new sense of who you are. Something changes in you. Earlier this week, I had the beautiful privilege of of witnessing something just like this where a person explained to me this mile-marking moment in their life where God was changing their name. So, well, this is interesting because our text this Sunday is Genesis 17. And actually, Jesus does something similar for Peter where he says, you're no longer going to be known as Cephas, but now as Peter, something is changing. And of course, I understand this in a way that is closer to home because my dad, when he was born, his given name was a Hindu name. That he came from a Hindu family. He was given the name Indra, named after a Hindu god or goddess. And when he 
said yes to Jesus and converted this costly conversion. He changed his name to David, not just as an arbitrary thing, but as a way of saying, in Christ, I have a new identity. And this is what happens to us when God offers covenant, when God establishes covenant with you and I, we receive a new identity. Now, no longer sinners, but saints. No longer outsiders, but children of God. No longer people who were afar off, but ones who now belong. No longer strangers, but heirs of the promise. When God establishes covenant, he gives us a new identity. You see this in a Christian marriage. A Christian marriage is kind of a witness to this. It's one of the reasons why there is a name change very often uh, in a Christian wedding ceremony. And it's not to say that the woman takes on the man's identity. I think that's a bit uh, of a twisted way of seeing it. I think in a very real sense, they are both entering into a new identity. There has not existed in the world before the union of this man and this woman, and now it does exist. So they are, in a sense, entering into a very new identity. Secondly, I want to say that when God establishes covenant, He invites us into a new relationship. Listen to verse 7 here. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant. It's going to go on forever to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And here's the phrase, and I will be their God. Now, if you were to read a little bit more in the Old Testament into Deuteronomy, and if you were to keep reading and go all the way to Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is now facing a nation that has already divided in two, and the people of Judah are about to be taken, carried into exile by Babylon, Jeremiah the prophet, after all these years later, says to Israel, God says to you, I will make an everlasting covenant, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. See, the rest of this phrase, I will be their God, the rest of this phrase is filled out by the rest of the Old Testament. Not only will he be our God, we will be his people. A new relationship is established. A new relationship, something that did not previously exist. A new kind of connection, a new kind of relationship. Maybe, we've, we've already talked about marriage being a, a picture of this, but maybe another picture of this is adoption. Something happens in adoption when you say this, that should not be called son or daughter, me who should not be called father or mother, now all of a sudden a new relationship happens. And this is my son, this is my daughter, and I am now their father, and I am now their mother. A new relationship has been created. In covenant, not only does God give us a new identity and a new relationship. But thirdly, when God establishes covenant, He demands our total surrender. This is why when we just have these thin categories of like, which is it? I just want kind of the low-budget deal. I just want heaven. I don't. It doesn't even compute with the language of Scripture. Because the language of Scripture is not that you can divide up the blessings and say, well, I'll just have this, but there's extra cost if you want this. Do you want more trophies in heaven than do these extra credits? It it doesn't even compute. Because the way covenant works is a new kind of relationship has been given to us. A new kind of identity has been given to us. And it becomes an all-consuming surrender. An all-consuming yes. A costly 
surrender. How costly, listen to verse 9. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Abraham's like, I'm listening. Every male among you shall be circumcised. No, 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 that's not God. God didn't say that. Now, there's no need to be crude about this, but there's also no need to gloss over this and to think that this is just no big deal. In fact, the storyteller will go through numerous verses to remind us just how costly this is over, over and over again to say this is a big deal. Every male in your household, even the ones that, you, that are servants in your household, every single man, everyone has to come through this. And it spells out for us in the bookends of this chapter, ver- verse 1 and the final verse of this chapter, bookend by telling us Abraham's age so that we know whether or not the Hebrews counted age the same cycles as we do. I, I don't know exactly, but somehow we're meant to see he's old when this happens. 99. And, and Ishmael is 13. They're in a desert with no ice. This is costly. Now, circumcision was an existing practice. There were other ancient groups that practiced this this ritual of circumcision. The difference is that in any other time you see circumcision being mentioned or written about outside of biblical literature... It happened at puberty. It happened at the age of 13. And it was a way of saying, now that this boy becomes a man, all of his sort of um, life of, of reproduction or, 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 or sexual sort of, the aspect of that aspect of his life, that is now consecrated. But the difference with what God says to Abram is on the eighth day from now on, on the eighth day, a newborn. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of God saying, All of your life will be marked by me. All of your life belongs to me. And I think where this really, where we can really begin to feel the costliness of this is to think about how often we want to say, well, God, you can have this part of my life, and God, you can have this part of my life, and you can have this part of my life, but I don't want you to have this part of my life. Well, God, you could say, I, I want what you have to offer with you. I, I think Jesus was a good teacher. I, I liked what he had to say about the poor, and I liked what he said. I'm not quite sure about this or this. I, I'm not, I don't quite care for Paul. <laughs> right? And we, being West, the Westerners that we are, we are used to sort of segmenting things. Well, I've got my work life. I've got my home life. I've got my recreational life. And God, you can, you, can, you, can, you can speak to this, and you can speak to this, and you can speak to this, but don't touch this. You hear it sometimes. Keep God out of the bedroom. Keep God out of my wallet and out of my bedroom. I don't need God telling me how to spend my money or how to li- live with, with any kind of ethics. I, I, I don't want God to, to speak into that. And this picture of on the eighth day is a picture of saying the costliness of belonging to God is all-encompassing. It's your whole life. It's all of it. There are a lot of gifts that we receive that end up costing us more than we bargained for. A puppy, for example. <laughs> now, in, 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 with our kids, we're reading, especially Jane, we're reading to our youngest, the story of Mr. Popper's penguins, you know. Say yes to a crate of penguins. What's the harm in that? Well, we'll see. 
right? Actually, kids themselves are the gift that ends up costing you everything. I love the pictures, you know, of new parents. They're, oh, my God, I love this little baby. I would do anything for you. I'm like, yeah, just wait. <laughs> you will. You will. And I know, I know that our parents that are in stages beyond where Holly and I are that are saying, well, just you guys wait 10 years from now. <laughs> you know, you thought it's costly now. Is it possible for a thing to be a gift and also to demand all? Yes. And we don't do ourselves any favors when we try to say, well, I don't know, grace, I mean, it's either free or it's not free. It either requires something or it doesn't. That's not true. The most beautiful things in life have a complexity in which they are both gift and cost. They are both the most beautiful thing we've ever said yes to and yet the most costly thing we've ever said yes to. And it's not easy to surrender. I appreciate the rest of this chapter because verse 17, it's not as if Abram says, oh, this is great, God, covenant, so awesome, circumcision, you got it. Verse 17, it says, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? I think this is echoed by Nicodemus's question to Jesus, don't you think? Shall a man who's already been born go back into his mother's womb? Abram says, shall a child be born? You're asking for the impossible. How can this actually happen? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham falls on his face. It's posture of worship. He laughs, indicating that he's struggling a bit. And then he bargains with God. He does what any of us do. Like, God, this is so great. You are God. Um, but this is a bit ridiculous. <laughs> and how about we make a deal? See, I've got this son already. He's 13. Let's do this. Let's bargain. Let's make a deal. How is this a response of faith? It's not exactly, is it? But I think there's comfort in that for you and me. In case you thought that the only way to join in on this story is to be perfectly full of faith. When God demands all, you're like, absolutely, God, I'm in. You say, you know what? This story, this story is full of people who are trying to bargain and barter and were scared out of their mind. They couldn't believe this was really happening. This is us. This is the story of us. <laughs> but then it says, verse 23, Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he, circum when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Enough already. Then that, that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. The story ends with Abraham's complete and total surrender. Because in the end, that is the only way to get in on this. Amen. That is the only way to participate on this. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis where he talks about the way that we're trying to wrestle and say, God, I want to be a good moral person, but I want to be in charge of my own life. And Lewis says, yeah, just uh, can't do that. The terrible thing, Lewis writes, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all of your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are trying to do instead. 
It might seem impossible to give him everything, but it's actually easier than what we're trying to do. But what we are trying to do is remain what we call ourselves to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life and yet at the same time be good. And Lewis says, it's impossible. So I'd like to be a good moral person. I like the teachings of Jesus, but I don't want to turn my whole life over to him. Lewis says, as difficult as surrender is, the thing you're trying to do is actually impossible. You know, when you think about these demands, it's, it's very easy to sort of think of it in the abstract. To think, so, well, I don't know. I mean, I've said yes to Jesus. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Keep a gauge every day, like 90% surrender level, you know. Ooh, that dropped to 40%. I mean, how, how do we... When you map out this chapter, really, it kind of flows in, in three sort of moments. There is the presence of God, where God says, Abram, come into my presence. Then there's the promise of God. And then there is the practice, the, the way that Abraham is supposed to embody this surrender and its circumcision. What is it for us as Christians? Paul makes that part easy, easy to find the, the correlation. Colossians 2 he says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is that, Paul? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all. The way that surrender is embodied for Christians is through the waters of baptism. It's the, it's the waters of baptism that, that, that symbolize, that enact, that say, yes, I am giving up. I am dying completely. I am, oh, it is over. And now I will be raised to life, not to be in charge of my own life, but raised to this new life in Christ. We're going to do water baptism here in a couple weeks at New Life Downtown. Some of you, you've never had that. That's never been the moment for you. It's not been something that's been part of your life. This might be an occasion for you to say, surrender is not just going to be abstract. I'm going to embody it in this specific practice as a way of saying an old life died and a new identity begins. A new relationship with God begins. Surrender totally begins now. But even for those of you that are baptized, it's not as if it's one and done. You know, like, oh, check the box, done. It's our baptism that reminds us to die daily. It's our baptism that reminds us that I've already said no to an old, I've already made a decision that makes all these other decisions easy. I've already said yes, and that yes means a thousand other no's. You make one yes, and it already settles the rest of the decisions. Some of you know this, but when, when we were in college, Holly and I kind of dated a little bit on and off, and I was a couple years ahead of her in school, and, and uh, naturally it didn't take me long to get wise and realize this is the one. And, and she had, let's say, a few other options, and so she wasn't quite as uh, quick. <laughs> and so 
there was, there, was, there was the last time that we broke up. The last time that we broke up was the summer of 2000. I was moving out here to start at New Life, and, and I was ready to sort of like, you know, kind of lock in this relationship, but she wasn't fully ready to do that. And so I said, you know, maybe instead of doing this long-distance limbo thing, maybe we should say it's over. Like, you know, it was great. It was a good run. It was a nice time, but, you know, let's, let, let's call it done. And so we did, and we, and we had this breakup, this tearful breakup in the summer of 2000, and I, you know, packed up my Jeep and drove out to Colorado for my new life at New Life Church, and it was, you know, it was, I could see, it was all poetic, I was like this tragic hero, you know, like, just, just, just so great. <laughs> and meanwhile, that fall semester, Holly, it was like all these other guys realizing that I was no longer in the picture, like, started to come out of the woodwork, you know? So she'd get, like, cards from different guys, like, just, just thinking about you today, you know, or some, like, Christian version of flirting, you know, like, here's a scripture verse, you know, <sighs> you know, what, what, one, guy, one guy, like, sent her flowers at her place of work, I was like, how lame is that, you know, I'm like, come on. Well, a few months into that, she realized that, that no, that, that she wanted uh, to be with me. And so she came out, she came out here with, uh, with a group of friends, and we had this great talk, and our relationship, you know, got back together. And a few months later, we were engaged, and she went back into her spring semester at school while I stayed out here. And because she was engaged, you know what happened? All the cards and notes and flowers stopped. Totally stopped. Nobody was sending her stuff anymore. Why? Because they already knew the answer. They already knew the answer. Holly, would you? No. Why? Because she's already said yes. You see, sometimes we think about the demands of God and we think, oh, God is a monster. He's a tyrant. He's an egomaniac who wants it all. No, no, he's a lover. He's a lover who has paid you what Lewis called the intolerable compliment of saying, I want you and I want all of you. And so we can understand this costly covenant as, oh, the demands of a tyrant. Or we can see it for what it really is, the offer of, of the most beautiful love we've ever been given. And it's the most incredible compliment we've ever been paid that we're kind of squeamish under it. We're like, oh my goodness, you really love me so much that you want all of me? Okay. Now here's where the story gets even more beautiful. If you keep reading in the Scriptures, you know that Israel could never remain faithful. You know that even that paradigm of love, Israel was was portrayed as the unfaithful lover. All through the prophets, that metaphor keeps living on as a way of saying, God has been the faithful covenant maker, and you have been an unfaithful covenant keeper. And when you keep reading in the Bible, what you discover is that Jesus comes to be faithful on our behalf. Jesus comes as God's way of saying, not only am I the God who makes covenant, I will come on your behalf to be the one who keeps covenant. Because no, you can't do it. You can't even be faithful to your yes. And so there's some ways of reading the passages in Romans as saying that we are saved not just by our faith in Christ, but by our faith in the faithfulness of Christ. That you see, God is so faithful that he is faithful to us and faithful for us. Faithful to us and faithful for us. You know, when you think of it that way, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through whom we cry, Abba, Father. When you think of it that way, all of a sudden you realize covenant is this mystery that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are doing and we get caught up into it. That the yes that we say to God is really this act of surrender. This act of saying, I want to give you everything, but I'm lousy at keeping promises. So how about we just say, I give up. And God says, yep, that's what I've been waiting for. You give up, you die with Christ. And by the faithfulness of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we are raised to new life. And you get to be children of God. You get to be part of the covenant work of God, part of the covenant people of God. Why? Because of the faithfulness of the Father, the faithfulness of the Son, and the faithful life of the Spirit in you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That all of this is a yes to be caught up in what the Lord has done.